So we've been doing a series here on God is. These are the attributes of God. This is number four. I'm planning on doing 10. We'll see how it goes, but this is number four. And we began at the very beginning, super basic. God is real. There is a real God that exists. We then affirmed that God is absolute. We looked at the name I am, that God is self-existent, that he is preeminent above all, that he is personal. Last week, we do not serve the force from Star Wars or any other impersonal God or universe with a capital U. We serve the living personal God. Well, now tonight we're going to move into something that is distinctly Christian. So far, a lot of religions can be with you, you know. There's, we believe in the real God. We believe in an absolute God. We believe that he's personal. Here is where we break hard to the right and leave everybody else behind, which is great. I love it. We're going to talk tonight about how God is triune. That is, God is three in one and one in three. This is probably the most mysterious, in my opinion, the most wonderful doctrine of the Christian faith, and I love talking about it. Part of the reason is because I had a no pun intended, come to Jesus moment with myself not long ago where I realized that I might as well not believe in the Trinity as far as the way I acted and preached and so on. And the Lord hit me hard on that. And so I have I've made a vow to the Lord. I'm never doing that again. And it was not that long ago that we did an in-depth three-part study on the Trinity. Go listen to it on the website if you like. We're not going to get too lost in the details tonight. This is just to reaffirm what we know about God through the revelation of his word. And the last three, we spent a lot of time showing how you can get to those conclusions philosophically, just through logic. It's easy to arrive at the idea that God is real and that God is personal and so on. A little tougher to do that tonight. This is revelation. And the Lord loves to do that. The Lord doesn't want to leave us stranded with our own, our own intellect. He gives us revelation. But I think it is entirely consistent with true philosophy and true morality, which is exactly what we should expect. But I hope we can get excited about the Lord and get a little revved up to be a Christian. It's okay to do that. <laughs> to be with the Lord who is triune and that the Trinity would soak into every part of our lives and our worship. Let's begin with some definitions. This is the summary statement of what's called the Athanasian Creed, 1600 years old. Pretty cool. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. This was written by a man named Athanasius at the close of what was called the Arian Controversy. We've talked about that before. And it remains to this day the clearest statement of Orthodox Trinitarianism that we have. Little archaic, one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. So let's simplify it a little bit. God is three persons in one substance. Let's look at that word substance first. One substance. One God, and the creed tells us we do not divide the substance. This is a reference to the unity of the Trinity. And it's a translation of a Latin word, substantia. So it's pretty much just a transliteration. Substantia, substance. And you may have heard it translated essence. That is fine too. We're going to use the word substance. It refers to the very makeup and nature of something. It's identity. You and I have the substance of humanity. Your dog has the substance of a dog. Or if you're a cat person, your cat has the substance of a cat. 
And in this case, we are discussing the substance of Godness. It's a characteristic of being God, his very definition and nature. So when we say we believe in one God and we do not divide the substance, what we mean is there is only one being. There is only one in the entirety of existence that has the substance of God. No one else and nothing else has the substance of God. That is the definition of monotheism, only one. We believe that Yahweh, Jehovah, however it's been vocalized, that is the only being that has the quality of godness. So if you were describing anything else, you could not use that word godness <laughs> to describe them because only one has that quality, his substance. Secondly, we believe that God is three, that he is three persons and that we are not to confuse them. We don't divide the substance and we do not confound or confuse the persons. This is the multiplicity of God, his threeness. Now that word person can get us into trouble if we're not careful. When we hear the word person today, we equate that with human. You talk about a human, you talk about a person, so that immediately we think of a self-contained entity. That is a personality, that has individuality, and that is not exactly, it's pretty close, but it's not exactly the case here. This is a translation of another Latin word, persona, again, where we get the word person from, and it might better be translated as distinction. So when you use that word person in a theological sense, it's a distinction within a whole. But the word person works really well because, as we learned last week, God is personal. So if there are three distinctions within the one God, they are personal. So the word person works fine as long as you know that we're not talking about three separate individuals. That's dividing the substance, and we don't do that. There is only one God, one entity that has the quality of godness, but that single entity is three distinctions, which are personal. And that sounds weird to us, because you've only ever met a single substance, single person entity. <laughs> you've never met anybody that was triple personed before. And because of that, we might say, I don't know about that. That doesn't make any sense. It's not possible. There's no such thing in our experience as somebody that has more than one person within themselves. How is that? Well, you got to remember, God is the greater and you are the lesser. You are a shadow of who God is. So the fact that we have one person within our substance is not normal. <laughs> it's the way that God created us because we are less than him. And he is greater than us and has three persons. So you don't look at the shadow and try to define the reality by it. Because a shadow isn't going to show all the details. So if you then saw the detailed picture and saw the shadow and try to argue that that can't be what it looks like because I can't see it in the shadow, that's a little odd way to go about it, isn't it? So this is why we rely on the revelation of the Lord here. God is greater than us. So there is only one with the substance of God. He is unity. But God is triple person. He is trinity. That's what the creed says. We worship one God in trinity and trinity in unity. So God is one in substance, three in person. Now, because the Trinity is kind of a paradox, it's not so much a paradox, it's just so foreign to us that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. We run the risk of trying to remove the mystery. Sometimes we say, ah, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And you think too long about it, and eventually you start changing the definitions in order to get it to make sense to you. But the creed gives us two errors to avoid there. Did you see them? Neither confounding the persons, which is taking the three persons and doing like Plato and rolling them up into one, or dividing the substance, which is the opposite of that. 
It's one of them is saying that there's only one God, one person, or saying there's three gods, and that's not good either. And depending on who you are and your personality and how you grew up, one or the other can be a stronger temptation. And you could call these the Eastern error and the Western error. And I call them that because through their character, those cultures have a tendency to drift to one side of the issue or the other. And we are in the Western camp, so the Eastern error is going to sound a lot stranger to you. <laughs> That's cultural. And you're going to hear the Western one, and you're like, I don't know, it makes some kind of sense. That's also cultural. So we're going to try and move out of ourselves a little bit here. Let's talk about that Eastern error. Eastern Orthodox Christianity, so Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, whatever, they tend to fall into the trap of dividing the substance more than we do. That is, they tend to lean into the three persons of the Trinity more than we do. They were born, you could say, way back in the day, thousand years ago, out of a desire to maintain the threeness of God. They felt like the Western church, specifically Rome, was confounding the persons. They felt like Rome was pushing it too much to being one and not enough of three, so they broke away. And because that was the moment that caused them to break away, they, they treasure that threeness very much to the point where they can start to look like they worship three gods more than one. Now, that is not what they teach, but you, you know that a lot of times practice doesn't live up to what you, you say you believe. So that's why we call that the Eastern error. I mean, you go to these Eastern Orthodox churches. If we ever go over to Russia together, I got some great friends over there. You go into these churches, boom, 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 three layers, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity symbol everywhere. They lean into that way more than we do. So it can be dangerous for them to talk about the threeness so much that they miss the fact that they're also one. We do the opposite of that. This is the Western error. We tend to drift towards confounding the persons. By we, I mean Catholics, Protestants, the Western church as a whole. We confound the persons more than we divide the substance. Why is that? Because we're a rational culture. We're scientific. And three persons in one does not sound very scientific. We desire to understand everything, reduce everything to an equation. And that spirit has a hard time humbling itself before the mystical idea of a triune God. So when we're here together, I don't need to spend a ton of time explaining to you that God is one. You get that. It's a lot harder for us to grasp that God is also three. And you can even sense that in yourself. And don't just say, well, one makes more sense. Culturally, it makes more sense. You go over to Russia, Greece, wherever, and the opposite makes more sense to them. It's not right for us to think of the Father as God and the Son and the Holy Spirit are like his lackeys. They do what he says. They're his creations. No, God is not monolithic and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not semi-divine. They're not derivative. They are also God. One is not more acceptable than the other. You have to preserve what's been handed down to us and you need to allow the Lord to stretch your mind a little bit. Romans 12 says to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, to let the Lord speak to you and to not think that your intellect is so great that God must be wrong. There are people that have done that. And I, I think that the clearest example I've seen of this was Abigail Adams. She was the wife of John Adams, who was the president of the United States back in the day. She was a moral woman. She was a devout Christian for most of her life. But late in life, she abandoned 
Trinitarianism and became a Unitarian. And she said, here's her quote, I acknowledge myself a Unitarian, believing that the Father alone is the supreme God and that Jesus Christ derived his being and all his powers and honors from the Father. Notice there's no mention of the Holy Spirit there. He always gets shoved to the side. So why would she do that? Here's what she said. There is not any reasoning which can convince me, contrary to my senses, that three is one and one is three. A lot of people who fancy themselves intellectuals can miss this one. Because what she's essentially saying is, you're telling me one plus one plus one equals one? No, it doesn't work that way. There's no sense in arguing that point. Yeah, you're right. One plus one plus one equals one. And if we're going to do a little math analogy, how about this? One times one times one equals what? One. Then now that's not some enlightened apologetic slam dunk right there. What that is, is it can show you maybe you're thinking about it the wrong way. Maybe your perspective is wrong. It's not three is one and one is three. Instead, what the creed tells us is three in one and one as three. This is ancient doctrine, you guys, and you should not set that kind of thing aside lightly, especially if you're going through a simplistic thought experiment. And like, I have unraveled thousands of years of church doctrine. No one has ever thought about this until me. Uh, no. <laughs> no, there, there are very, very smart people that have thought through these things and come up with very good answers. So those are the two errors, the Eastern and the Western, if you want to call them that, and we want to avoid both of them. Now, where do we get the doctrine of the Trinity? It comes from the Bible. We believe that God is triune because the Bible tells us so. Now, there are a lot of skeptics, especially some so-called Christians, who want to say that you can believe in the Trinity if you want, but you don't have to biblically. It's one way to explain it. There's a lot of other ways to explain it. And they're very quick to point out, there's no verse in Scripture that says, this is the Trinity. You don't see the word Trinity in the Bible, and they'll triumphantly laugh at you and say, oh, Google it in your concordance and see if you can find the word Trinity. Well, the Bible does not include the word Trinity, but it talks about God in such a way that there's no other options left. When you try to square what the word says with what you believe, when you want to come to a comprehensive statement of faith, you are driven to what we call the Trinity. If you want to do justice to every verse in the Bible, you believe in the Trinity. Now, here's the thing. The Bible reveals truth progressively. You know this, right? In the book of Genesis, it was written thousands of years before the New Testament and Revelation, etc. And over time, the Bible gives us a complete picture of who God is. And a lot of that is because the, the books of the Bible were written, it's called occasionally. They were written in response to certain occasions, right? The prophet Nahum spoke because Assyria had invaded Israel. He wasn't writing the book to give a, a systematic theology. The closest thing we have to that is Romans, but even that was written to a, a certain group of people for certain reasons. But when you take it all together, you see how the Holy Spirit has laid principle upon principle and built them all together to perfection. You start out in the Old Testament with a very strong foundation of monotheism. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is pretty clear cut. That is monotheism, and the New Testament does not challenge it. Ephesians 4, verse 6, and James 2, verse 19, both quote from that. It's called the Shema, from the first word in Hebrew. And the Old Testament frequently pits the one living God against the, 
the, the pantheons that these other cultures had. And if we want to look at it philosophically, it's much more plausible for there to be only one God as opposed to many, if for no other reason than it's just simpler that way. But here's the thing. As you go through the Old Testament, you see that its descriptions of that one God hint at greater complexity than you would think right away. If the Trinity is true, he has always been that way. Therefore, in the Old Testament, when they're talking very clearly about the one God, you would expect there to be language that would accommodate the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's exactly what you find. For example, from the very first verses of the Bible, you experience what I would call our first distinction within the Godhead. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right away, there's a distinction here between God in verse 1 and the Spirit of God in verse 2. Now that could raise your eyebrows. Are they the same person? Is the Spirit just a metaphor? That's a common thing. Oh, it's just a metaphor to describe God's presence. But if that's the case, why would the author allow for such ambiguity on something so important? Not only that, but even the word for God in this passage is more complicated than it seems. That's the Hebrew word Elohim. In Hebrew, when you want to make something plural, you add I-M, im. In English, you add the letter S, typically, okay? So you have a plural word. It comes from the root El. The word El is singular. It means God in Hebrew. And you add Ohim, and it makes it plural. A lot of places in the Old Testament, depending on the context, will translate that word as gods, little g, gods, plural. The same word with no change. Context matters. This is why we translate it differently. So what you have in the first verse of the Bible, you have a plural noun with a singular verb. I know it's grammar, and maybe it's been a while, but a plural noun with a singular verb. The Lord our Elohim is one. If God's monotheism is monolithic, as we would say, similar to how Islam, for example, thinks of Allah, then why is his very name in the Old Testament a single entity composed of distinct parts? Now, if that was all we had, it would probably be reaching, but alongside everything else, it becomes quite compelling. And I go through more detail in our series that we've done before on this whole thing, but God was laying down the foundation of monotheism. Only one being has the substance of Godness, but he was leaving the door open to introduce distinction within the Godhead. And that's what requires the full canon of scripture. And that brings us to the New Testament. And I am, of course, skipping over a lot of verses that we could talk about, but this is, this is for time's sake. In the New Testament, Jesus is called God. He is distinct from God, right? Jesus prays, he worships, he submits to his Father, the Father speaks to him, they are distinct from each other. And yet he is both implicitly and explicitly called God by a bunch of people who would recite the Shema every morning, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my father are one. And the Jews were going to stone him for daring to equate himself with God. In John 8, 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He's attributing to himself not only God's eternal nature, but his covenant name. Just in case you were thinking Jesus was a second God, he's taking the same name that God the father has. The Jews tried to stone him for that too, by the way. But he also described a relationship that he had with God that is far deeper and more mysterious than any relationship you've ever had. 
Matthew eleven twenty seven. he said, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus says he has exclusive knowledge of God, and God knows him in the same way. He says, I have the ability and the authority to dispense the knowledge of God to others. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With and was. Jesus said he had that special relationship with God. It involved him knowing and being known by God. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit the same way in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. He said, God has revealed this to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So Jesus was and with the Holy Spirit, same way, was and with. So you've arrived at three distinct persons who are all fully one God. God called the Father, the Word of God, who is Jesus of Nazareth, and the Holy Spirit distinct from each other, and yet in inseparable communion with one another. The Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Spirit is God. The Bible teaches that very clearly. And yet it also teaches that God is one. So you do not find the word Trinity in the Bible, but what else do you call that? <laughs> it's a pretty good word, actually. It is a term that we use to fully incorporate all of the biblical teaching that we've just studied. God is one and God is three, one in substance and three in persons. Nowhere do the writers come out and go, this is the Trinity, but they use Trinitarian language so often that it becomes clear that this was how they understood it. I have a long list of these that I love to run through, but I'm just going to read through three. I thought that was an appropriate number for tonight. See how each of these passages in the New Testament incorporates the Trinity. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And there's a ton more of those. The New Testament writers, that's how they talked. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And once you start looking for those, by the way, they're everywhere. <laughs> the Old Testament hints at it. The New Testament reveals it. And now we accept it. We did not make up the Trinity. We arrive at this conclusion out of a high view of Scripture and a desire to fully include all the information in the Bible. And that's why we believe in the Trinity. Now, why does this matter? For one thing, and I think this is a cool thing, we do not serve a monolithic, demanding, tyrannical God. God is not just one person in heaven that rules by his will and what he wants, and there's, there's nobody else. Instead, God is a living, united communion of persons. God himself is a harmonious relationship. Isn't that something to think about? That is who God is. He is a harmonious, loving, submissive relationship. 
He exists in a state of being. All three persons are equal in substance, yet they're organized in their role. We didn't talk about that much tonight. It's called the economy of the Trinity, how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit interact with each other. But you know this. God teaches us to be loving leaders and submissive followers, not just by what he says, but by who he is. God himself is a fellowship of loving leaders and submissive followers. What does that teach us? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal to each other. They're not greater or lesser. One is not more God or less God than the others. However, the Spirit is in submission to the Father, who has delegated all authority to Jesus Christ, who will give it back. That there is submission and authority within the Godhead. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that our worth as people is not determined by what we do, or the responsibilities that we have, or where we are in the hierarchy. That what matters is who you are. The worth of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is who they are, not what they do. The Father is not greater than the Spirit. The Son is not less than the Father because He died on a cross and the Father did not. It's because of who they are that gives them value. And in the same way, you, whether you're a pastor or a surgeon or a dishwasher or a wife or a husband or a king or a slave, it does not matter before God who you are because God is assigned you value based on who you are. That's how God looks at us. This is why the Bible can tell us, love each other. What makes you think you're better than him? What makes you think that you're better than her or less than? The Lord does not look, as the, as the word says, on the flesh he doesn't look at people and see rank and title and authority or status or money or skills. The Lord looks at us as people, that you are all equal in his eyes. God loves you because you bear his image. That is so great. Do you know why? Because it takes where your self-worth comes from and it places it outside of what you do. What have you accomplished? How much money have you made? Have you made any friends? Are you married? Any of that. It doesn't matter when it comes to who you are and what you are worth. Because that's not how God values himself. That is so amazing. Because it nestles our self-worth in the character of the living God. And it also teaches us to love each other. And how the church ought to function. And how marriages ought to function. And families ought to function. That it doesn't matter who does what. Because you're all equal in the Lord's eyes. I love talking about the Trinity. It reminds us, perhaps more than anywhere else, that God is holy, that he is above and beyond everything that we are. I think we need an extra shot of, of the Trinity. Like If we were in the spiritual hospital, they're like, I'm going to hook you up on a, on a few rounds of Trinity because you need that. I love it because it's so directly mystical and spiritual. That the minute you start explaining the Trinity to somebody that's maybe a skeptic and doesn't care for the church, all of a sudden, you've kind of lost them. I like stuff like that. Because it's the Lord reminding us that he doesn't bow to our sensibilities. And I also like it because you sit there and you think about it and you're like, I think I get it. God, you must be really something. <laughs> it distinguishes us beyond doubt as true Christians. That we are tied through blood and faith to the generations who have gone before us. And it may be beyond the limits of our minds to understand it fully, but we do not abdicate the responsibility to learn more. That God is one and God is three. Three persons in one substance. The Holy Trinity.